Well, go ahead. If you have your Bible uh, at Substance, we go through the English Standard Version. If you have a device, you can click on that particular version. We're in our second week of our Holiness and Hope series, which is going to take us uh, to about Thanksgiving, going through the book of First Peter. So if you want to turn to First Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to be camping out in verses 6 through 12. We learned last week that God, in his mercy, has caused us to be born again to the living hope that is Jesus Christ. And what that hope brings us to and what it provides for us is an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for us by God's power through our faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. So what Peter does is he's opening up this letter to give a big like shot in the arm of hope to a people that he knows are suffering. And they're going through many of the same things that we find ourselves going through. It was a different culture. There was a cost to claiming the name of Christ. There was a cost to being baptized back in that culture. A little different than some of the things that we face today. But we all have different ways that we experience trials. And we have different ways that we experience suffering. And everybody here has something in their lives where they're experiencing something that really is as the result of the fall, as the result of sin, as the result of things not being exactly how they're supposed to be, how God originally intended. So today what we're going to look at is the method that God uses to produce a faith in us that is both real and genuine. So I'm going to start out because what Peter's not doing is he's not really defining our faith as much as he's giving us a picture of what God uses, sort of the method God uses to refine our faith. So I'm going to open up with Hebrews 11.1, which defines faith as this, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we have the assurance and we have conviction. And here is the question for us as we launch out this morning is how does God grow this assurance and conviction that is supposed to make up the substance of our faith? I didn't just throw substance in there to get all the oohs and ahs right there. It's, it's really the word, right, in the book. But how does God grow this assurance and conviction that makes up the substance of our faith? And our main point, what we're going to anchor ourselves in and drive at this morning is simply this. Our faith is so precious to God that he puts us through fire. To purify it, right? Fire. That's not my word. It literally says fire. Like when we get to the the passage here in one second. And so we're going to see that we have a faith so precious to God that he does some really crazy things, at least to us, how it might strike us in the way that we think about God. He does some really crazy things in our lives to actually purify and refine that faith. So let's just, let's just dive right in. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to pick up with verse 6, and it says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's just pause right there. He starts out with this phrase, in this you rejoice. Well, in in what, Peter? 
and what do we rejoice? Well, he, he kind of laid that out for us last week as we went through verses 1 through 5. We rejoice in our status, the status we have in God. We rejoice in the rebirth, the fact that we've been reborn to a living hope, the fact that we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that God is keeping He's guarding for us by his power through our faith. So when Peter says rejoice, I kind of pointed this out when we were going through the liturgy. The word literally means jump for uh, joy. Uh, and it also means, the, other, the secondary meaning of it is, is this word to have exceeding gladness, okay, for the hope that you've received in Jesus Christ. But then Peter says, he, he kind of gets out of that pretty quickly as he's set up this particular uh, 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 series of churches and brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he literally comes in after giving them the hope and the assurance of the work of Christ in their hearts. He says, man, can, can we just talk about the elephant in the room? Because he knows what he's writing to them about. He knows the hits that these people are taking in their faith and, and he encourages them by explaining who ordains, who allows all of these trials and these hits and these sufferings to take place in their lives. And, and maybe some of you will be shocked to learn that, that God actually is the one that ordains our, our suffering. We're, we're responsible. People are responsible for, for some of the evil and some of the wickedness that can be the cause of our suffering. But everything is still ordained by God because there's not a single solitary molecule in the universe that is, that is not in his control. And we believe that when we look in the pages of scriptures. So what we do is when we look into verse 6b uh, here, it says simply this. If, though now for a little while, he says, if necessary... You've been grieved by various trials. So there are temporary yet necessary trials that you are being made to grieve over and endure. And you know what's interesting about that is, man, nobody, most of us, I should say, man, we don't come out of Sunday school believing that God does that. We don't come out of Sunday school culture believing God allows various trials for a season because they are necessary for our faith. I mean, do you catch that word there? Necessary? I mean, like, are you hearing, like, are you hearing that? Like he's saying, though you grieve for a little while, if necessary. Like, we don't think of God, like, like putting us and causing us to go through things because they're, I mean, necessary, you know? I'll tell you what's necessary for me, a little food and water, right? You know what's necessary for Big R? Like a double cheeseburger. Like, that's, that's necessary for me, right? Trials and suffering, it's hard for me to lock into that and thinking of that as being something necessary that God allows. Well, how about an explanation, Big R? What does he mean? What is he talking about when he says necessary? Because, you know, we got to be honest, right? I mean, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone going through a deliberating or a debilitating, I should say, hardship and hear them just kind of say something flippant like, you know what, don't worry about me. I'm, uh, I'm just going through some necessary trials right now. Right? I mean, it's like you're not, it's probably not going to happen to think that God has purposed various trials in our life because he deems them necessary, verges on like bonkers. You know, it, it almost feels bonkers. And we can't help but ask in those times the questions that seem to come, that seem to feed into our hearts during times of trials and pain that you have experienced, that I have experienced is simply this. We ask things like, what good is pain? Like, what good is this? How is this helping me? What good is suffering? 
When we find ourselves in those seasons in our life, those are the questions that kind of rise up. They rise to the surface of our hearts. They're good questions. We should ask those questions. But you know, you know, what, you know what question God is asking, according to this passage here? The question that God asks is this. What good is your faith? That's the question that God is asking. And then Peter tells them right here in verse 7. He says this. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You catch those first two words that he says there? He says, so that. Like you just write those in all caps, right? So that. This means, this means God is not a, a, this, this cosmic sadist, right? Who finds enjoyment by inflicting pain. Some people have that view of God. There may have been times where you've had that view of God. Or when you're going through something incredibly difficult, you have the tendency to believe it. Like, what is this guy doing to me right now? But this tells us something different. And Peter just reminded them in verses 1 through 5 of God's great mercy. And God's guarding power over the salvation they received in Christ. So verse 7, what it does for us, what it helps us in when we think about the things that are bearing down on us, is it helps illustrate God's divine purpose. Peter is illustrating God's divine purpose for their faith because their faith is precious to him. Peter says, in the same way that we use fire to refine precious metals like gold, God applies the same process to your faith, which is more precious to him than gold. So what he's saying is these temporary but necessary trials, man, they are not for nothing. That's what he's trying to say. And the result, the result of that is the reward of eternal glory with Jesus. In fact, Peter describes it in chapter 5, verse 4, which we'll get to in a couple months. He describes it as this as an unfading crown of glory to be received when the chief shepherd appears. Does God allow suffering in the lives of his saints? Yeah. God has everything to do with our suffering, which is the only reason we can be hopeful in it. You guys following me on that? I mean, remember the story of Joseph? Remember what Joseph was being made to put through before at the end of all those years? You know, being thrown in a pit by his brothers, going through all of these years of slavery. He finally gets the VP position in Egypt. It's a crazy story, right? But what does he say at the end of it when he reunites with his brothers, which, by the way, he could have wiped out with like a snap, right? This is what he says. He says, what you meant, what you meant for evil, evil, which means brothers, they, they're responsible, right? God was not the author of all the pain that was inflicted on Joseph. But he says this about his brothers who were responsible for it. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So this is what we understand about suffering is that a suffering faith draws us closer to a savior who suffered for our salvation. Tim Keller says this, he has this great quote, and he says, while sin always blocks our relationship with God, he said suffering can deepen it. And that's what we know about suffering. And, and here's the kicker, here's the kicker for Christians. 
is that we actually have, according to what Peter is saying here, we actually have a gladness that exceeds grief when we're grounded in God. Isn't that amazing? We have a gladness that can exceed the grief that has been inflicted upon us when we're grounded in God. And having this exceeding gladness, you know what's crazy about it? Is it puts us in some exclusive company as we look through uh, the pages of scripture. Remember Job? Remember Job just getting everything yanked from him, right? I mean, everything gets taken from him. You know, all of his money, all of his riches, all of his wealth, his family. I mean, it wasn't just taken either, right? I mean, like his, his, all of his children are, are killed. Like everything just drops. Everything vanishes. You know, Job says, he says, this is the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you guys were in church and you know, the 90s and the 2000s, you know, maybe churches are still singing that song. Blessed be the name. I'm not going to go into it right now for you. But like that's where that, you realize that's where that song is like, that's where that song comes from. And we kind of, we sing it, you know, and it's, it's exuberant. Blessed be the name. The Lord, the Lord gives and takes away. Well, I mean, do we know what he's taking away? I mean, in the life of Job, it was, well, like everything. It was everything. In the book of Habakkuk. This is uh, the minor prophet Habakkuk, and he makes, this, he makes this ridiculous statement. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit bend on the vines, the produce of the olive tree fail, and the, fee, the fields yield no food. He says this, okay, man, it's all going down. I don't know how we're going to eat next year. The economy's tanking, right? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How is that possible? Paul in Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It wasn't all about what was being taken, what was being inflicted. There was something. There was a future-mindedness. And there's no better example than Christ. The writer, the author of Hebrews in 12, chapter 12 says... Speaking of Christ, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there's something, there is an exceeding gladness that goes beyond the grief that we have in this life if we're grounded in God. This is the best illustration I can come up with. It's not great. Um, But it's a much less severe illustration than the ones we've just been reading about. Maybe the kids can lock into this and understand. But here's the thing. So for me, Christmas Eve was like the day. Right? I loved Christmas Eve. Now, we were a presence on Christmas morning fam. I mean, that's how we rolled it in the Martin household growing up. But this is what was interesting, is that there was so much excitement and exceeding joy and exuberance, okay, and greed and all that other stuff for, for Christmas morning. It didn't matter what, what kind of pain that my parents inflicted on me in terms of chores and all those things on Christmas Eve. It didn't matter. Like, you could not get me down. It was like, oh, you want to wash your car nine times, Pop? Sure, let me just get on that. I'll do it. I'll have it done lickety-split, right? Because there was something I was waiting for. There was something in my future that was keeping me grounded, that was holding me over. I had Christmas morning to wait for. And so as we get into verse 8 here, Peter does something really interesting. He makes this interesting contrast between himself and his readers. Because what, what is happening with their faith is that their faith had produced a love for Jesus. 
So all these trials and all this suffering, it was producing something. And Peter, you know, with a lot of heart, when you look into verse 8, he comes to them and he, he makes mention of what these trials and the suffering were producing for them, which was a love for Jesus, even though they'd never laid eyes on him. You know, Peter, man, he spent three years with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' boys, right? I mean, they're traveling, they're touring around. You know, they're, you know, witnessing all these incredible miracles and seeing all these people being baptized. Like, Peter was there on the ground floor with Jesus. These people weren't. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So these were people suffering through a faith, but still had a deep love for the Lord, a person that they had never seen, unlike Peter. Jesus said in John chapter 20, he made this, he made this really amazing comment. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So la- last time I checked... Nobody here has seen Jesus. I don't need to raise a hand because nobody here has seen Jesus. There are no apostles in this church, right? We have no biblical precedent for God making personal visitations in anybody's life here, all right? None of the Instagrams posted of Jesus back in the day are still uh, in existence, right? None of that stuff exists, right? But as Christians, because of that, we walk by faith. And not by sight, like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And you know what's interesting is that Jesus actually rebuked his 11 disciples after his resurrection for their unbelief and hard-heartedness of not believing the testimony of the angel and the woman who were by the tomb saying he is risen. He said, why aren't you believing them? Why isn't their testimony and the words that I gave you leading up to that testimony, why haven't those changed your heart? Your heart is hard. But the blessing, all right, follow me here. The blessing of a genuine faith is that it leads to what Peter is describing here as a rejoicing faith, which he calls an inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. Like Peter, my, who t- like what was in your water when you wrote this stuff? I mean, inexpressible joy, right? Is that like a, you know, is that like a, you know, like a square circle? I, like, what are you talking about here, Pete? Well, it's not, it's not an oxymoron. It's that there is a weighty, indescribable, listen, supply of glory-filled joy that we express in part, but never attain a full expression of until the last day when Christ is revealed to us in all his glory. That's the result of this refining process that Peter is talking about for us tonight. What's interesting is that God didn't provide images. He didn't. I don't, I don't know, right? God did not provide images for us of himself. He provided inspiration to men who wrote the very words of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit to reveal his plan of redemption. And so Peter reminds these these Jewish exiles, like we learned about last week, that he calls the dispersion, that, hey, by the way, just so you guys know, this isn't some crazy concoction of ideas that I put together one night because I was, you know, I, you know, I had Photoshop up and I was feeling a little creative. Like, that's not what Peter is doing here. In fact, he, he roots them in the historic tradition of their Jewish faith in verse 9. Uh, verse 10, he says this. 
concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In verse 12, he says this. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things, wait for it, into which angels long to look. So what Peter does here is he takes his readers back to how God orchestrated and then amplified the message of the gospel to reach their ears. First off, this is what he's saying, the sufferings of Christ, they were predicted and anticipated by the Old Testament prophets who under the inspiration of the Spirit of Grace, the same Holy Spirit, um, wrote down these words and then were delivered to the New Testament apostles who then preached under the same inspiration of the same spirit, which is now the gospel news that was given this church, that was given our church. And then just, by the way, what Peter sort of tosses on the side there, angels long to look into, right? That's sort of the, that's sort of the, the timeline of, of salvation that you see God orchestrating and amplifying. And then he gets, to this, he gets to this end part where he talks about angels longing to look into this salvation. You just kind of go like, like, Pete, I'm kind of following. Like, I'm struggling. I'm not going to lie. And then you get this angels long to look into part. And I'm like saying, wait, what? Like eight times, right? Well, Ephesians 3.10 kind of tells us what we need to know about that. It says angels How they learn of God's salvation, which is something they are eager to learn about, they learn that through the church. So what what that means is that the church is God's marketing plan for the good news of the gospel, even to the angels. That's how the angels who long to look into that redemptive process, that's how they understand. So this faith that was being tried and tested and given to the churches that 1 Peter is writing to, you can just see how deep and layered and leveled it goes, right? This is something that, the, that, that uh, angelic beings long to look into. So you just see the lengths that Peter is going to, and we're like 12 verses in. He wants his readers to see the vastness and wonder of their salvation. And we just ask ourselves, you have to ask yourself how intentional God was in unfolding his plans and purposes. God prepares us for glory by grounding a very grounded faith. And his method is through temporary trials and testing. Why? Why? How about a little demonstration, Big R? Why does he do this? Well, a couple of things. Trials reveal to us what we believe about God. Trials reveal to us what we believe about God. They have a way of surfacing the objects of our affection. Let me ask you this, okay? What kind of father would God be if he ignored the refining of your faith? What kind of monster would we become if God ignored the refining of our faith? Right? What kind of monster would we turn into? God gives and takes away so that You are blessed with a faith that blesses God in all things. How else? How else would you suggest God makes you holy? 
right? Like if God just came up to you and like sat down and said, all right, man, you got me. I got a pen and paper. You know, give me, give me a couple of tips. How, how should I make you holy? I mean, wh- I mean what are you going to come up with for him? Well, you know, since you asked, you know, I mean, there is that house in the Caribbean and there's that jet, this guy named Creflo Dollar on TV about the $60 million jet. I'd kind of like one of those. A couple of extra cars, you know. Is it legal to have a few wives since you're out? I mean, you know, Solomon, you know, can we talk about those kinds of things? And uh, that's not really the way God rolls out increasing the value and the veracity of our faith, right? And if you want to do an experiment, if you want to see how this might work out in the day-to-day, try an experiment with your kids. Like, if you want a really horribly demoralizing night or life with your kids, try this. Take away their toys. Take away some toys. Take away their Netflix. Yank their iPad. No more snacks before bed, right? Do that. I mean, nobody's going to call CPS. That's not, that's not child abuse. You can try that, right? What do you think? that that might produce over time. What's interesting is this, right? Kids don't understand, sorry kids, that it's for their good that parents take away their comforts. They don't get that. But there's not an adult in this room that doesn't look back and appreciate their parents for not disciplining them and for not spoiling them, do we? None of us think that. It actually shows you, if you have a parent that was good and was that intentional with you, it actually shows you how much they loved you. If your faith is more precious to God than gold, then you will value, listen, you will value what he does to make it genuine. It's how you will be able to rejoice like Job. It's how you will be able to have assurance like Joseph, because your faith has value to God. Your faith is the gold standard. That's what he applies to it, the gold standard. You know, if you had a personal trainer who just told you to hit the snack bar every time you were starting a training session, I mean, I'll be honest, that's kind of the trainer I want, but I'm saying, you know, with all things being what they should be, which is a dude that's trying to get you into shape, I mean, would you really refer him to all your friends? I mean, yeah, you wouldn't, man. You realize you have a trainer who doesn't care about your fitness, right? My wife reminded me of the story about our daughter, Beth. When she was learning to swim, Melissa would stand just far back enough in the, in the shallow end so that after Beth jumped in the water, she'd have to swim a few feet, you know, to, to reach her. And, uh, you know, Beth did not like that. She didn't like that plan. Not agreeable to that one. Um, she just wanted to be caught. Like, let me just jump in and just land right in your arms. But being caught which is very comforting, doesn't really teach you how to swim at the end of the day, does it? And by the way, Melissa was, was right there. There was no way Beth had any chance of being in any danger or drowning. But two things happened as Melissa stayed a few feet back. Number one, our little Bethy learned how to swim. And two, she learned how to have greater faith and trust in her mom. There's value in that. That's the value. That's the kind of value that God has and he's placed on our faith. So when trials come, when? It's no, there's no if. When trials come, consider Peter's words 
And one, recognize them. First off, recognize your trials. Don't miss them. Don't miss your trials. Some of you are going to be like, Ronnie, you know what, man? It's just not a, it's not a big deal. It's just my kid. My kid's two, and two-year-olds are ridiculous, you know? Well, well that's true. Two-year-olds are literally insane, certifiably. I had one, right? I mean, nobody's gonna, anybody wants to argue with me, you're just going to lose the argument, right? And I'll have, a, I'll have a whole army of people that are ready to fight, right? But what is, what is God refining in you through that? What is he refining in you in that process? Don't dismiss it because you think it's not as hard as what some people are going through. Because don't worry, that one's coming. The harder thing is coming. And so suffering, it comes in different forms. It comes in different shapes. And you want to recognize that for some it, it's, it's, it's a mental suffering. It's mental anguish. It's not as noticeable to others. But you have a weight. If you read about the old uh, Prince of Preachers, the classic theologian Charles Spurgeon, I mean, this is a brother, I mean, who could just hit it out of the park every time he stood behind the pulpit and he suffered debilitating depression all through his life. It never ended. Bouts of just massive depression. Those were his trials. A lot of people probably didn't know about that until he wrote about it. But God had Spurgeon. So Spurgeon also experienced times when God pulled him out and brought him back. God brings us from sort of the glassy lakes of our lives that we love to lay back and float in to oceans of adversity. Remember Matthew 14 when Peter walked out into the ocean to meet Jesus, right? Peter didn't need saving when he was in the boat. But as soon as he stepped into the stormy water, he needed God to save him because the genuineness of his faith was being revealed in that time. And God is interested in a mature faith. He's committed to producing a mature faith. And this is what a mature faith is. A mature faith is when we cling to Christ in the good times like they're bad. And in the bad times like they're good. That's a mature faith. So one, recognize your trials. Two, remain steadfast in your trials. James 1 says, he kind of mimics the words of Peter here. And he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I mean, I don't know, you know, stamp that somewhere on your body, right? Like, I just want to see that verse every day and be reminded of. Some of you say this. Some of you have said this to me. If only the hard things just didn't come all at once, I could handle them. Ever find yourself saying that? But that's why God gives us more than we can handle. So that we can't handle them. So that we find ourselves falling on our knees in helplessness and going before him and saying, God, I need you. I realize this is a refining faith moment and I need you to intercede in my life. Remaining steadfast, you know what that means? For us in the day-to-day, it means returning to God over and over again to break your habit of independence and bring you back to prayer. That's what remaining steadfast is. 
bringing you back to prayer, bringing you back to God's word, bringing you back to fellowship with your church body. Because you know what? Those are the three things that always go when we allow trials to obscure God's promises to us. Those are the things that go. Those are the things that just get thrown out the window. We can remain steadfast because suffering suffered defeat. You realize that? Suffering suffered. Suffering suffered ultimate defeat on the cross, which we will see the culmination of when we meet Christ and receive, as James pointed out, the crown of life. Something that takes us beyond this life. So recognize your trials. Remain steadfast in them. And three, finally, rejoice in your trials. We sang about it. It was the opening song tonight. Purpose yourself to praise God. When you find yourself going through those seasons and those moments. I was at a funeral uh, yesterday. A friend of mine led the funeral. He gave an amazing gospel message. And he, uh, he said something really interesting. He said, we are helpless. That's what he said. It's the cheeriest funeral message I've ever heard. He said, we are helpless. He said, we are helpless against preventing suffering. We are helpless against preventing the decay that is naturally happening to our bodies. We are helpless against stopping our forward motion into what we don't like to think of and call death. We're helpless against that. It's coming. Death rate, last time I checked, one per person. But he also said this. But he said, in Christ, because of the gospel... Helplessness turns to hopefulness. We are helpless. I mean, just raise your, you know, I'm, I'm helpless. Like, like all those things I just mentioned, you, none of you guys got anything for that. None of you guys have some magic trick in your pocket that's going to prevent suffering. And if you do, you're just, you're a liar. You're delusional. And ain't none of you all got anything to prevent death, right? I mean, some good medicine, right, it can, you know, Hold back a little bit of the suffering sometimes. But ain't none of y'all got anything for death. But we're not hopeless, are we? We can withstand trials because we've tasted God's goodness as the result of enduring him. And all of this is possible because, because your faith is not your own. Right, listen to me as we close. Your faith is not your own. Praise God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says this, and I'm telling you, it says it in the Greek and every other language you can like pull out of this thing. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Here's what, we, here's what we need to understand about our faith, is that it's more valuable to God than it is to you because it was gifted by God to you. Which is why none of you actually keep the faith. God keeps your faith. The only reason we have a faith is because God gave it to us. The only reason we keep the faith is because God keeps our faith. He guards it with his power like we learned in the first five verses. Here's a question. If I ask you... Why you thought your faith was real. How would you answer? Think about that. If I sat down and I said, tell me why your faith is real. How would, you, how would you answer? I mean, I'm trying to think of how I would answer. How would you answer that? Anyone can say they have a faith. 
I can tell you right now, I got a faith. Well, you're the guy up there, aren't you supposed to? Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, I have a faith. I can say it. Not a lot of effort. I know those words of the English language. Most people in this town will tell you that they have a faith. They will. The stats for Worcester and Ashland is about one out of, one out of two people attend a church. Most politicians will say they have a faith. Not that we're hearing a lot about that right now, right? Some of you sitting here this morning claim to have a faith that you don't actually have. But we can say, I have a faith. And so it is the testing of your faith that will prove the genuineness of it. It will show whether you are a fan or a follower of Jesus. There's a massive difference between those two things. Jesus had fans. They didn't follow him. When suffering begins, listen. When you have to give something up. When physical pain overcomes your life. When the loss of a loved one overwhelms you. When your resources have dried up. When he slays you like we sang. To whom do you turn? To whom do you love? To whom do you believe? To whom do you rejoice in? Because a tested faith reveals a genuine faith that will result in a rejoicing faith. And that is a real faith. And our encouragement is that our faith is so precious to God that he puts us through the fire to purify it so that in the last day we will glorify God with a joy that will no longer be inexpressible because we will have obtained the outcome of our faith and the salvation of our souls. That is the hope that we have in a God who calls our faith precious to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're merciful and you're gracious to us tonight as we step through these hard words of Peter. And we're reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of your intentionality. We're reminded of the value that you place on our faith. We're reminded of the lengths that you go to and have gone to since the foundations of the world to give us a genuine faith that will result in praise and honor and glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you don't waste our suffering. Thank you that our trials aren't wasted, but you use them when necessary to draw us to a deeper love and affection for you who we have not seen physically, but that we live in hope to one day see and spend eternity with. 
Lord, thank you for this great salvation that we have in Christ. Lord, let us not take it for granted tonight as we think of the sacrifice paid for us, as we think of the faith that Jesus came to die for so that we might trust in you, not only in this life, but for all eternity. Lord, let these things not be lost on us. Give us hearts that understand what it means to go through trials that remain steadfast and that learn to rejoice even when you slay us. Lord, because we know you're a good God and we know that everything you do is for your glory and everything that is for your glory is for our good and it creates the deepest satisfaction that is available for us. Thank you for that earth-shattering truth. Let it ever change us, we pray. And all God's people said together, amen.